Hey guys, hope all is well. Um, in this podcast, we're going to do it a little bit differently. I'm uh, interviewing a very special man. His name is Andre Norman. Uh, I invited him to do uh, a talk at my event last week. We had 600 entrepreneurs here in Amsterdam and uh, we had a really amazing three-day experience and uh, with uh, a couple of really special hours because Andre did his thing and he really shook the room and uh, made a huge impact on those 600 entrepreneurs. So that was amazing. So I uh, I bribed him. I told them, like, we have to do a podcast for my, uh, for my English podcast. So, um, yeah, there's a podcast about Andre Norman. Uh, it's a man who spent 14 years in prison, uh, turned his life around, and now for over 20 years his life is dedicated to one thing, and it's helping people. And uh, it's just a really special story and a really special man. So uh, in this podcast, a little bit different than usual, uh, but enjoy it and uh, till another podcast. Bye. Okay, I'm here with the one and only Andre Norman. What's up? What's happening? What's happening with you? What do you think of Amsterdam? Amsterdam is like a super cool place. I mean, this is the type of place you can just come. It's not even vacation. It's just relax. Yeah. I've been on vacation where I haven't relaxed. This is a vacation where I'm actually relaxing. Yeah, because you're here for like 10 days or something. I stopped counting the days, and I'm just enjoying them now. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So we had a, we had a great time at our event last week at Devoted Life. Uh, what do you think of the event? The event, what I understood in Dutch, I started understanding Dutch. Yeah. <laughs> that was the cool part. Yeah. But um, the people, regardless, it was another nation, another set. It was, it was just like people looking and willing to learn. Mm. It was just cool to see people wanting to grow. Yeah. They want to be better. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, obviously, we got, like, hundreds of responses from, uh, from people who attended the event, and I think in 80% of all the responses, your name came through. Uh, you really crushed it, and you really made a big difference uh, for all the people, also for our event. So thank you for that. That was uh, that was amazing. That's a shout out to Dolly for seeing me back in Phoenix a year and a half ago to say, "Hey, I saw this guy, and I think it'd be great." And then you following up because so often you see something, then you don't follow up. Yeah. And then you halfway follow up, and then you say, "Okay, well, I heard it, I saw it." But I don't know if it's going to fit. Yeah. You start looking for the perfect place. And you just, the both of you got together and said, let's do it. Yeah. And took a chance on a guy who never spoke in Amsterdam at a conference for Dutch people before and said, we're going to take a chance with our business, with our names, with this guy, and we're going to go for it. Yeah. And that's what entrepreneurship is about. Exactly. Going for it. Yeah, taking some risks. And this wasn't really, for us, it wasn't really a risk. I knew, I saw you on stage once for a small period. And, uh, like, indeed, 18 months ago, Dolly sent me a voice note, a four-minute voice note, like, man, I met this guy, you got to meet him. And uh, and uh, saw you a year ago or also, like, 18 months ago or something. No, maybe a year ago. Like, yeah, this guy, he needs to come to Amsterdam. And I've seen a lot of speakers and I've seen a lot of people in that space. And I don't often... Uh, think like, oh, he needs to go or she needs to come to Amsterdam, but this was a no-brainer, and uh, so thanks for coming here. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, cool. So, um, what if if somebody um, meets you and they'll say, like, what do you do? What do you say? I tell them crisis management. It's okay. my <laughs> I do crisis management because yeah. most people are in some form of crisis. Yeah. They're stuck in a job they hate relationship they can't figure out. 
They got kids that are out of control, addictions, or just depression, or they just haven't figured out life. Life yeah. is hard to figure out. Yeah. I don't care how great you think you're doing at it. There's yeah. always a new curve to life. Yeah. What do you say to somebody who's a, a, what do you do when you meet somebody who's really addicted to whatever? When I meet somebody who has an addiction problem or a crisis, as I call it, um, the first thing I do is I listen. Because so often those people are talked at and given directions and given a book or given a training or given a way out. And very rarely does somebody actually listen to their pain mm -hmm. or listen to their why. Yeah. When you listen to their why and you listen to their pain, then your information that you're giving them is based on them. Yeah. It's not based on the last 20 people that no. you saw who had similar issues, you yeah. think. Yeah. And you have this gift of really seeing people and seeing through people. And how did you develop that? My gift of seeing people, reading people, and seeing through people, I got in prison. When I was in prison for 14 years, every encounter could be your last. Yeah. We had a saying in jail. Get it right or die. Yeah. So every time somebody approaches you, you have to understand their intention. You have to understand their motive. You have to understand who they're connected to. What is the angle? Mm -hmm. There's an angle to everything. So I learned to read angles, read um, possibilities, read everything about a person. Then you learn to understand how far will a person go? What are their breaking points? Because now my team, or my gang as you would call it, I need to know what they can withstand because if one of my team falls short or doesn't measure up, that's an entryway that can get me killed. Yeah. Everybody's looking for the weak link. Yeah. And if you find a weak link in my gang, that means you get an opportunity to kill me. Yeah. So I had to keep my gang as strong mentally and together as possible. There could be no weak links mm -hmm. because a weak link meant I died. And how did you keep them strong? The way I keep people strong is I manage their emotions. Everybody has an emotional trigger. Some people, it's their mom, it's their dad, maybe it's their kids, maybe it's their church or their religion, maybe it's um, a situation. Maybe you got beat as a kid, maybe you got abused as a kid, maybe you couldn't, they made fun of you as a kid. What is your biggest source of pain? Mm. Not joy, but pain. Mm. You can't read, you were molested, you were made fun of, your parents ran out on you. Your sister did something bad. What is your biggest source of pain? Mm. I would find that, and I would counsel you and take that from you. Mm. And I would hold your pain. Mm. And once I had control of that pain, you would do anything not to get it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, once you know um, where the pain is and, and how do you deal with it then? Like, how do you help people out when when you find out, like, their source of their pain? Well... Before, I didn't help them out. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Before, it was about controlling you. Yeah, yeah. I found out your pain so I could control you, what you did and how you did it and when you did it. Yeah. Now, I find the pain point and I help you heal from it. Yeah. Instead of keeping it in a, in a, in a case to keep you under control, yeah. I give you control over it. Mm. Before, I would take control over it mm. and you would feel okay, but you were under my control. Now, I teach you how to control it and yeah. how to manage it. Yeah. What do you do when somebody when it's too hard for somebody to enter their pain, to feel their pain? It's it's never too hard for them to enter or or to feel it because they're in it already. Yeah. That's like saying, what do you tell somebody who's in the pool who hates being wet? Yeah. You're already wet. Yeah. 
you're in the water. Yeah. So these people are already actively in their pain. They try to make believe that they're not, but they're in it. Yeah. And you just have to get into the water with them and stand with them. Yeah. It's not, you can't do this from a podium. No. You can't do this from a stage. You have to physically be there with them yeah. and emotionally be present for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, can you tell a little bit about your story, like what's your backstory and how um, how did you get here, but also what was the, the road that you had to travel to get here? My road, um, I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. My mother married a high school sweetheart and had two kids. Her husband robbed banks, so he went to prison. She met my dad, a local drug dealer. She had four more kids. So mom, dad, six kids. Dad used to beat up mom for sport because he didn't know how to communicate. So I would see my mother get beaten routinely. Eventually, she kicks him out of the house. Single mom, six kids, living in the inner city. It's just bad. You've seen the movie. I can't read and write. I can't count. And I just fall behind the other kids. Luckily, a teacher takes interest in me. And she teaches me in the third grade how to read. By the time I'm 11 years old, I find out that we're poor. You don't know what your poor is when you're six because everybody just plays in the dirt. And you run around and nobody cares what you have on. When I got to be 11 and 12, those kids had new clothes, certain types of shoes, certain types of hats, certain types of bags. And I had none of that stuff. So I was made to feel really bad because I didn't have the stuff. But you, you had to have stuff at 12 years old to be accepted. At eight, you run fast, you're accepted. At seven, you're funny, you're accepted. At, at five, you, make, you can make goofy faces, you're accepted. At 12, you have to have stuff, yeah. physical stuff. Do you have the right shirt, the right watch, the right pants, the right shoes? And my mother couldn't afford the stuff. So in the end, I started committing crimes, selling reefer in the park to get the stuff. And I become a bad kid. At the same time, I wasn't a bad kid. I just want—I was a kid who didn't want to be made fun of. Yeah. But it takes me down a bad road. Yeah. And by the time I'm 14, 15, I'm just all the way in the street. And I'm on that track now of in the street. And in the streets, one or two things happen. You die or go to jail. I went to prison. And when I got to prison, it was a reunion of all my friends from the dummy class, a reunion of all my friends from the principal's office, a reunion of all my friends from juvie, all my friends who quit band, all my friends who quit football, all my friends who quit all sports. Mm. How, many, was, how many people did you know when you got in? How many people did I know? <laughs> it was like the freshman class. Wow. It was like you go to, I guess we call it elementary school. Then you go to middle school. Then you go to high school. Then you go to college. When you leave your, your school and you go to college, that freshman year, there's going to be a lot of kids you know from back when you went to school with you. Yeah. Then you'll see kids from other parts of the country, of the state, who are you, but you don't know them. Yeah. You can see they're, they're you just in another space. Yeah, yeah. They came from another city, yeah. but they're you. Yeah. They're new, they used to be cool, they used not to be cool, and they're in this new space. They have the same look that you have. Yeah. So it's kind of like a camaraderie with the freshmen. Yeah. We're all newbies. Yeah. And you get in where you fit in. Yeah. How many people are in jail in the States? Um, there are 2.2 million people in prison right now today in America. And there's another 8 to 12 million people on supervised release. Wow. 
And there's 200 million people in America? There are 350 million people okay. in America. I believe at the last count. Yeah. 350. Yeah. And 2.2 of them inside and another eight on supervised release. Like, I don't count anymore. No. If they do the census track for criminality in America, it's either you're inside or you're on supervision. Yeah. That's about 10 million people. Yeah. I don't count anymore because no. I'm off supervision. Yeah. So all the people who are off, we don't count. No. Okay. Okay. So you're you're in prison. You meet all your uh, uh, camaraderies, and uh, then what? For the first six years, I wanted to be just like them. Yeah. I wanted to be a gangster. I wanted to be a tough guy. I try. I adapted to my surroundings. My environment made me who I was. Yeah. And I wanted to be just like my environment. Who were you when you got into prison? Who was I when I got to prison? I was an 18 year old scared little kid. Yeah who knew nothing yeah. and wanted to stay alive and not get raped or murdered. Yeah. That's who I was for real when I got off the bus. Yeah. And when I got off the bus, I was going to do anything and everything not to be murdered or raped and to be accepted. And I still have this thing about wanting to be accepted. That has never gone away. Mm. Um, I wanted to be accepted at 12. I wanted to be accepted at 15. Now I'm 18. I'm in a new environment. I still want to be accepted. Yeah. And But the acceptance here comes at a different cost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So for the first six years of my time, I just got in trouble. I fought. I proved to be a tough guy. I proved to be a good fighter. And everybody loved me for it. Yeah. I was really good at it. Yeah. And after six years of being a psychopath, I call it, I realized I had become king of the prison. Mm. Everybody loved me because I became the king. Yeah. And then one day I woke up and I realized I was the king of nowhere. That's what I call it. Yeah. Nobody cared about where I was. Yeah. Nobody cared about the building I was in. Nobody cared about the stuff that I had amassed. I was the king of nowhere. And I didn't want to be the king of nowhere. I want to be the king of somewhere. But I have this saying, if you're a king, you must live in your kingdom. So I was a king in prison. So as long as I had that crown on, I had to live in prison. Our president, Donald Trump, he's the president of the United States. He can't move to the Netherlands and get a house and just stay. He'd have to go back to America because he's a king of America. He can't move to Brazil. He can't move to Russia. He has to live in America. Mm -hmm. And he has to live in that house. Yeah. The way, it's mandatory. You live in that house. You're the president. Yeah. It's the same thing in prison. When you become the president of prison, you have to stay in prison. Yeah. And I realized that, and I said, okay, I retired. I took the crown off. And I don't want to be, I let somebody else be king. And that gave me the ability to move towards the door. I can now try to say, I can, now if Donald Trump decides that he doesn't want to run again and he retires as president, he can move any way he wants now. But as long as he's president of the United States, he must live in America. Mm -hmm. And as long as I was king of the jail, I would have to be incarcerated. Yeah. So if me um, to get out of prison, I had to decide not to be king anymore. Mm. That was a hard one. Yeah. Why was it a hard one? Because there's a lot of money, yeah. a lot of fame, and a lot of status in jail. came with being the king of the jail. So you made money in jail? We made money in jail. Yeah. We had a prison with 2,000 people. For the sake of being nice, I'll say 50% of the people are drug addicts. That's 1,000 people use drugs. A bag of heroin, when I was in jail, cost $50, yeah. 50 euro. So if you could sell one bag of heroin to every addict... That's 50,000 euro on the prison yard every day. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, you have a lot of coffee shops here. Yeah. Who goes to the coffee shop and smokes one joint? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody. Yeah. No. So for all the weed heads you have, if that's what you call them, in Amsterdam, if you could sell one joint to every person, how much is that per day? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, a lot. It's a lot of money. Yeah. So I have a captive environment. <laughs> I'm in a captive environment. I got a captive um, base of buyers. And I'm the only one in town. Can you talk freely about this stuff, or do you? Yeah. Need, okay. So we sell drugs every day in jail. Okay. Dr drugs are being sold every day. There's I don't no wanna, secret. I don't want to get you incarcerated again. No, no, it's no secret that people sell drugs in jail. Yeah. So the fiends, they're still addicts. If they stay addicts. If you're an addict today, and I take you and put you in jail tomorrow, you just became a bigger addict. You have wow. even more reason to get high. Wow. Because now you, your life is ruined. Wow. On top of how, how do they get the money? If you were in jail right now, if you had a nephew and he called you and said, hey, Uncle Elko, I need 50 bucks, you going to send it? Yeah, sure. That's how he gets the money. Yeah, yeah. If you were in jail and you called your mom and your dad and say, Mom and Dad, I need 100 bucks, they going to send it? Yeah. Did you help them get the money? Don't need to help them. Okay. You know your clients. Okay. So let's say Elko is in the prison and Elko likes to smoke weed. I would learn who your parents were. Yeah. I would learn how much money they have and how much money they're willing to give you. Yeah. And I, because you're my client, yeah. I need to know who you are and yeah. what your, your your capabilities are. Yeah. And I would know Elko's parents are rich. Yeah. And they're gonna pay for whatever he buys. Yeah. So you have no limit. You can buy whatever you want on credit. Yeah. You take Johnny. I know his mother's struggling. She's gonna send him a hundred euros a month. Yeah. So I'm gonna get at least half of that. Yeah. So his limit is fifty euro. Yeah. I got this guy. His sister takes care of him. You get to know everybody's personal story. Yeah. How did you, how did you keep the money? Like you made money. How did you keep the money? Oh, we keep it on the outside. Okay. So if I sell you a bag of heroin, your parents would or whoever would send the money to my girlfriend's house. Okay. Ah, and, okay, okay. So I give her a list of thirty, forty, fifty people and how much they owed, and I would call home at the end of the week. Yeah. And say, is there a letter from Elko? Yeah. Yes. Is yeah. there a letter from Johnny? Yes. Is yeah. a letter from Steven? No. Yeah. I would go see Steven. Where's my money? Yeah, yeah, Because <laughs> he couldn't get away. Yeah. So prison commerce is real. Yeah. Have, we, you, have you always been entrepreneurial? Even before, yes. So I would say from the sixth grade on. <laughs> from the sixth grade on, yes. Yeah. I was running a gambling book in, in what we called high school. Yeah. And I was 14, 15. I love wrestling. Yeah. And we know wrestling... Is is fake for lack of a better term. I love it, but we know who's gonna win. Yeah. I would make the other kids bet on wrestling, <laughs> even though I knew who was gonna win. I had, every month there was a wrestling match, and I would tell we would pick them. Like, okay, you get to pick one, I get to pick one. But I know who's gonna win. Yeah. You know who's gonna win before the fight even starts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every like two years, it'd be an upset. Yeah. I mean, that's not bad odds. No, no, no. So I would make you. I had a gambling. I had a gambling book in. Um, I was fourteen. Yeah, yeah. I always like making money. Yeah, that's good. So you're in jail for six years. Then you get the awakening. I get my awakening after six years, and I decide that I want to be free. Your, my first thought was free. I want to be free. And I looked around, and everybody who got free came back. In America, there's a large problem with people getting out of jail and going back. So they were getting free, but they couldn't keep it. Mm. So I don't want to copy people who fail. So I said, I want to be successful because successful people don't come to prison. So I found another group of people to copy. 
and I copied successful people. Mm. What's the percentage of people that actually become successful and get out of jail, you think? Most people, their goal is to get free. Yeah, that's the problem. So they get what they ask for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they got free. Yeah. They don't seek success. They no. think free first, yeah. success later. Yeah. So they prepare to be free. Yeah. Now, to be free from prison in America, all you have to do is sit on your bunk and not get in trouble. Yeah. You don't have to do anything. Mm. You just not get in trouble. Yeah. And at some point, they'll kick you out. Yeah. To be successful, you can't sit on your bunk and do nothing. No. You have to actively do something. You have to study. You have to grow. You have to build. And most of the people get free. They say, I'm going to get free. The way you get free in America is just sit on your bed and don't get in trouble. So when you go home, if you did nothing to earn your freedom, what is it worth? Mm -hmm. You're not prepared to do anything. You're just prepared to walk out the door. Yeah. So when I started studying to be successful, I went to college. I went to programs. I went to trainings. My conversation was different. And because I was preparing for success, where everybody else was preparing to be free. Yeah, yeah. How did you prepare for success? The way I prepared for success is they had college classes. I took them. They had self-help groups. I took them. The types of conversations I had, I changed them. The people I was around, I couldn't really change, but the things that I did, I changed. I started changing everything to a positive. Mm. And, and any opportunity, I used to be around a lot of young guys in prison because they're just there. They're young gang members. They look up to me. In the beginning, I would send them to beat up people. I would send them to sell drugs or to collect money. Later on, my challenge was how do I get them to behave? How do I get them to deal with their issues? I had the best test lab of any psychologist or counselor in the world. Yeah. I had thousands and thousands of people who were damaged, who were angry, who were disgruntled, who were hurt, who were addicted, and had nobody else to help them. Yeah. I had thousands of people around me I could practice, for lack of a better term, on helping. Yeah. Yeah. And there was, there was no wrong, there was no lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> I could help anybody. Yeah. And it was just too many people to help, and I practiced every day. Yeah. Yeah. How did you deal, for example, with the guards? How do you deal with the guards? The guards in America generally stay out the way. Okay. Because there's 2,000 of us and maybe 200 of them. Yeah. So the guards generally don't bother you in a sense of as long as you're not jumping on a fence or actively trying to kill somebody, they stay out of the way. Yeah. I remember when we were at Genius because we're both in the same group in, uh, in uh, Phoenix, uh, Joe Polish Genius Network. Uh, you were sharing a story about how you could eat well in prison. I don't know if you remember the story. Yes. Um, oh, my, my hamburger story. Yeah. <laughs> well, at this time, I wasn't reformed yeah. or trying to be. I was trying to be that guy. Yeah, this was I, in the first six years. In the first six years. Yeah. I was a top, one of the top gang members in the state. And I woke up one day in my cell, and I was hungry. So I get out of my bed. I walk downstairs to the gate. The officer at the gate, I give him a head nod, he opens the gate. I go into the hallway. I walk down the hallway, there's another gate. The guy sees it's me, give him a head nod, he opens the gate. Walk down the hallway some more, there's another gate. This is maximum security prison. I just keep giving head nods, and they keep opening the gates because they know who I am. I get to the central control inside the prison. This is a place that controls all the doors. And I step at the in front of central control, I give him a head nod, and I point towards the kitchen. So they unlocked the kitchen gate for me. I walk down the hallway to the kitchen, get to the doorway to the kitchen. I knock on the door. The guy pulls a slot back. He sees it's me. I give him a head nod. He opens the kitchen door. 
So now I walk into the kitchen. All the food, all the cooking utensils, the grill. And I say to the guy, like, hey, make me a hamburger to the guy on the grill. I said, another guy, yo, make me some fries. They're like, yes, sir. And they run off. The guy runs to the refrigerator to get the hamburger. The other guy runs to go get the french fries. And I'm just standing around waiting now because I really don't talk to these guys. They're like kitchen workers. <laughs> so I'm standing there. I'm, they all have, like, white clothes on because they work in the kitchen. And then I, I, this guy walks up on me. It was like some white guy that knew before. He says, um, what are you doing in my kitchen? Who are you? You're not dressed properly because I had regular clothes on. You don't have your right clothes on? What are you doing in my kitchen? What's going on? I'm like, well, who are you? He said, I'm the new food service administrator. I run this place. I got this degree, this degree. I ran this kitchen. I ran this restaurant, and I run everything here now. And what are you doing in my kitchen? Who are you? You'll get this. At the time, there was a song called The Regulator Out by Warren G yeah, and Nate Dogg. Yeah. It was like the, the song. Yeah. So it just came to me. I said, I'm the regulator. He said, you're the regulator. He says, what do you regulate? I said, if you go home or not. He, he, he heard what I said, then it sank in. Yeah. He said, I decide if you go home or not. I said, let me explain something to you. I'm here probably forever, and you're going home. You got a family. You got a wife. You got a kid. You got a house. You got parents. I have nothing. And right now, I want a hamburger. You see those guys over there? They're cooking it for me. And I pointed, there's lockup, solitary confinement, the solitary trays were being prepared. Solitary is when you get in really, really bad trouble, they put you in this dark hole for like one to ten years. Yeah. I pointed to the solitary trays. I said, you see those? Those are solitary trays. If I kill you right now, they'll take me to solitary, and I'll get one of those trays for the next two, maybe three years. Then when I finish my solitary time for killing you, I'll come back out, and you'll still be dead. And I'll be back right in the same kitchen getting a hamburger, and you'll still be dead. All my loved ones can come visit me while I'm in solitary. They'll be visiting you at a gravesite. Now, if you haven't noticed, I walked through five locked gates to get here. Everybody's doing exactly what I told them to do. You're the only one giving me a hard time. I'm not a bad guy, but I got a choice right now, and you can help me make this decision. I can either get a hamburger today I can get a hamburger in three years. You make the decision. And he thought about it. He walked over to the grill. He told the guy on the grill, make him two. Then he looked back at me like, are we okay? I'm like, yeah, that's, that was a great decision. That yeah. was better than I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he walked back into his office. And he's probably having an anxiety attack because all through training, they never told him that um, we have control. They told him we do whatever we say you do. Yeah. And and every time I came to the kitchen from then on, he understood who I was. Yeah. And he was just like, hey, get that guy what he wants. No problem. Now, I know there's limits. I can't just go in the kitchen into the refrigerator and take 20 pounds of meat and run it back to the unit. There's limits. Yeah. But as long as I stayed within my limits, he stayed out of my way. Yeah, yeah. Because he understood a reality. Yeah. I could kill him. Yeah. And it wouldn't matter to me. Yeah. And... That was my hamburger story. <laughs> Have you stayed in that solitary confinement? Have I stayed in solitary confinement? I went to solitary confinement twice. Okay. The first time, it was like for almost a year. The second time was for two and a half years. Wow. What's it like? What is it like in solitary? 
20, lock yourself. What the best thing I can tell you to do, go in your bathroom at home, unless you live in a mansion. If you live in a mansion, go into the guest bathroom. <laughs> Don't go into the master suite where it's like room on top of room. Go into like a regular bathroom where there's a sink, a toilet, and a shower. And close the door. And imagine staying in there for two and a half years. They bring you your food to the bathroom. They yeah. open the door, they hand it to you. Yeah. Everything you need is in there. Yeah. A toilet and a sink. Yeah. Now, we actually don't have showers, but that's all you need. Yeah. A toilet and a sink. Yeah. And you put the, the shower to be your bed. Yeah. And you live in your bathroom for two and a half years. Mm. The space, eight by ten. We'd have bars instead of a door. And I lived in something the size of a bathroom for two and a half years. Mm. And one or two things happened in that space. You go crazy yeah. or your mind gets really strong. Yeah. Or your mind gets really strong and then you go crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's a it's a tough, challenging space to be in. How did you so did you get stronger? I'm sitting here. Yeah. <laughs> so I got stronger. And did you get crazy? I got crazy in a sense of go for it. Yeah. Because when you stop playing it safe and segre- and solitary, your mind goes. Yeah. You have to keep you have to keep trying new stuff. Yeah. You have to f- invent new ways. What worked for the first three months, it's not going to work for the next three months. No. What did you do? How did you get strong? One of the things I used to do is maybe twice a month you get a newspaper, and you'd have that paper for like ten days, twelve yeah. days, one paper. And first, I read the sports section because I didn't care about what happened in the city. Then you go, you put it down. Like a day later, the paper's still sitting there. And you got nothing else to do. You pick it back up. Then you read. Eventually, you read the whole paper. Mm-hmm. What do you do after you read the whole paper twice? What do you do? Yeah. What I started to do is I started solving the problems in the newspaper. Uh. So I'd read the newspaper, and it says there's there's a building downtown, and it's emitting certain types of gas. I would say to myself, how would I fix that? Mm. And I would sit there maybe for a day or half a day and I'd come up with solutions mm. to that. Mm. There's a problem with youth getting in trouble in the south side of the city. I would say, what would I do about that? Mm. There's a rash of car break-ins. There's whatever the problems were. I, I would sit there and I'd read the story and I'd come up with my solution for the problem. Mm. And then I did that at first. Then once I had all these solutions... I don't know if there was any good. There was a guy next door to me named Junior Chung. Junior Chung was crazy. He had gone crazy. He was on medication. Every day they brought medication to Junior because he had gone crazy. And I would sit there, and I would talk to Junior, and I'd explain to him my solutions. And when Junior Chung could understand my solutions and have a full conversation with me about my solutions and get it, I knew I had a winner. Mm. Talking to smart people is easy. Yeah. I was talking to one of the craziest people on the planet, fully medicated and out of his mind. Mm. And when I can get him to understand my solution, I go to the next one. Yeah. If he couldn't understand it, I go back to the drawing board. Yeah. And he was next door to me for like a year and a half. So for like 18 months, I ran all my program solutions off Junior Chunk. Yeah. And he was the best guy ever to run him off of because yeah. he was crazy as you wanted to be. Yeah. So you became super resourceful. Yeah. Yeah, you had to. I would just, I would get a paper It got to the point where I would solve every problem. And every if it was about housing, if it was entertainment, if it was movie sales, it, what, it didn't matter what it was, home and garden section. Mm-hmm. I would read the paper 
and find everything in there that was a problem and come up with a solution. Yeah. Your team was losing. What do you need to do? I mean, I became an expert at everything. Did you write it down or did you keep it in your mind? Or? I kept it in my head because yeah. I didn't have anything to write with. Yeah. So you, ha you have nothing to write with in, when you're in solitary? I didn't. No. Some people do, some people don't. Okay. Depends how they treat you. Okay. So you got your awakening after six years. What happened? When I had my awakening, I decided I wanted to go home and go to Harvard University and be successful. Everybody thought I was crazy. Everybody thought it was impossible. I went back to school, got my high school, got my, my high school degree. I went to college. I went to programs. You did all that in jail, yeah. In prison. Yeah. I went to the law library, and I taught myself the law. I became what they call a jailhouse lawyer. And I went to appeal court, and I won my, my appeal and took 10 years off my sentence. Mm. Every day, for 20 hours a day, I found something positive to do. Mm. Started designing programs for youth. I designed programs for guys in the prison. I did, you name it, I did it. When did you get 10 years off? What year was that? I don't know. I can't remember the exact year. It was probably 94, 95. You got out in 1999, right? 99. Yeah. Now, uh -huh. the bad part is I should have only done 14 months in prison. Oh, wow. I did 14 years. Mm. I got arrested. I went to court. If I'd have pled guilty or just accepted the guilty finding, they'd have sentenced me. I'd have went to prison. I'd have filed my appeal, and they'd have overturned my appeal. Mm. Now I went home in 12 months. Mm. But instead, when I found me guilty, I ran. Mm. I picked up five or six more charges. Mm. I got sentenced on those new charges. And then when they eventually overturned my first case, it didn't matter because I picked up six new ones. Mm. Yeah. I stayed in jail because I ran. Yeah. I ran for my situation, which only made it worse. Yeah, yeah. So you get your awakening. What was the awakening? The awakening was... I was about to hurt some people, and a higher power told me don't do it. Mm. This was like the last straw. It was because it was the thing that was going to make me the number one guy. Mm. And the number one guy, I guess, doesn't make it out. And this was like my last straw. And my, my higher power said, Andre, don't do this. Life choice. And in the end, I listened. And in the end, I came up with a plan to do something different, go home, go to Harvard. And for eight years, 20 hours a day, That's what I did. Mm. I worked every day towards that goal. Mm. In November 15th, 1999, I walked out of prison, not just free, but with a success plan. Mm. And I came home and I started working on my success plan. Not 10 months later, not 10 days later, 10 days, be eight years before I got out, I started working on my success plan. Yeah. What was the first thing you did when you get out of prison? First thing I did, which was mandatory, I went to the parole office. I had to go sign in with the government. And let them know that I was going to not do drugs, not rob people, go to the house at 10 o'clock, all the stuff I was supposed to do. After I left the government office, I went to a youth center. I talked to probably like 12 or 15 young black kids. And I told them, I just came home from prison. I've been in 14 years. And of all the things that I learned in prison, I know you're not going to jail because you're black. You're not going to jail because you smoke weed. You're not going to jail because you're in a gang. You're going to jail because somebody let you down, they hurt your feelings, and they disappointed you. You don't know what to do with that pain, so you self-medicate, and you act out. And that acting out is now criminal, and that's why you're going to jail. Mm. So let me show you how to deal with the reality of your life and the pain that's in your life 
and then you won't have to act out. You mm -hmm. won't have to self-medicate. Mm -hmm. I started working with black boys. My first 90 minutes. I was home 90 minutes. I did my first group. Mm -hmm. And last night, yeah, last night, no, no, the night before, I did a group. I think it was in South Amsterdam. Yeah, Southeast. Southeast. So I've been doing them for 19 and a half years. Yeah. I haven't stopped. Yeah. It's what you do. It's not what I do. It's who I am. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what um, What would you advise people that are listening to this or watching this and um, that are acting out or numbing their, numbing their pain or whatever? What would you advise them? Because you can't help everybody one-on-one. Um, -on -one. I know you, you're, you're trying to, but you can't. Um, if somebody's listening and he or she is in pain and acting out, could be drug addiction, alcohol, food addiction, sex addiction, whatever it is, what would be a piece of advice that you would give him or her? First thing I would say, there's a book called The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. I got a chance to meet Keith, fabulous guy, and he does, I hope it's in the book, there's a thing called the is line and the ought to be line. And he, he explains that there's two lines in our lives. There's what is, then there's what we want to be. And most people become experts at what they want to be and not what, what is. Then if you ask somebody what's their problem, the gap between what is and what we want it to be becomes a problem. Yeah. So I'm 131 kilograms. I want to be 105 or whatever the thing is. So I would say... The 20 kilograms is my problem. Keith would say, no, eating is your problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not working out is your problem. The 20 kilograms is a byproduct. It's a symptom. So I would say for all the people who are struggling, if you can read this book, this is a great illustration. If you're in pain, it's not the symptom. Most people focus on the symptom, the smoking drugs, the gambling, assaulting, whatever the thing is, that's not your problem. That's the result of your problem. Mm -hmm. Your problem is something else. Yeah. So I say to people, don't focus on the symptom. Drinking, sex, pills, whatever your thing is, is the symptom. The problem is something else. Yeah. Find the real problem. That's the pain. What causes the pain? Mm -hmm. Not what you treat the pain with. Mm -hmm. What causes the pain? Yeah. So I would advocate that you try to find what is causing your pain and focus on that versus what are you doing to treat the pain and trying to get rid of that. Because yeah. if you get rid of the treatment, you're still left with the pain, yeah. which would mean you'll just treat again. Yeah. Yeah. But if you get rid of the pain, the treatment is not necessary. Yeah. Do you have any ideas or suggestions on how to uh, um, deal with the pain that, that, that we feel like? Uh, or I would say... When you know what it causes, how do you deal with it? So, for example, um, um, uh, I was being bullied when I was a child. This is not my story, but if I was being bullied as a child and I'm, uh, I want to be seen, I want to be heard or stuff like that, uh, but nobody sees me, they just bully me. Uh, and because of that, I, I started to become a, a drug addict or a food addict. What would you advise me to do? First thing I advise everybody is get professional counseling. Don't go talk to your best friend. Yeah. Don't even talk to your spouse. 
professional counseling. Yeah. These are professional, real issues. Yeah. This isn't something that you just made up. Yeah. You didn't forget something one time. This is a life issue. And anytime you're dealing with life issues at this magnitude, you want professionals. You don't, your best friend who happens to understand you is great. Mm. But if I, if I need surgery, I'm getting a doctor. Yeah. And there's a 99% chance I never met the doctor before in my life. Yeah. Yeah, so but I'm going to go to the hospital. Yeah. I'm going to say, hey, I need, I need surgery. Can I get a doctor who's the best at this? Yeah. And they're going to give me a doctor. And the fact that I do not know this doctor from any place is irrelevant. Mm. You're the doctor. This is what you do. I'm going to trust you to do the surgery. Yeah. But when we have personal problems, we go to non-professionals and say, fix me. Yeah. And that's what happens. And you're going to get the work of a non-professional. They're yeah. going to mean it. They're going to mean well. Yeah. Their intentions will be great. You won't let that person operate on you. Yeah. But you're going to let this person solve a crisis in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And then they want to, but they're not equipped to. Yeah. So get professional help. And the best thing you can do when you get professional help is tell the truth. Yeah. I had my gallbladder removed. And before I went in, they told me, Andre... Before your surgery, you need to do these three things. And I remember one thing, they, they gave me this stuff to wash with because they was going to cut me open. They said, make sure you wash with this like three days before every day. And when I showed up to surgery, they asked me, did you use the soap we gave you? It's really important because yeah. I can get an infection and die. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, if I lie, it's my life. Yeah. I can use the treatment. And tell them the truth. I could not use the treatment. Now, had I told them I didn't use the soap, I wouldn't be in trouble. They would just postpone my surgery. Yeah. But if I lie, then they're going to go forward and boom, I get an infection and I die. Yeah. So go to professional help and tell the truth. Mm-hmm. It's your life on the line. Yeah. You might get an infection. You might get a problem. You might have a side issue. So when I go to my professional counselor, I did something I never told be- I'd never done before. I told the truth mm. about me and my mother's relationship, me and my brothers and sisters' relationship, me and my dad's relationship, me and my friends' relationships, how I saw the world from my eyes. I just told the truth. Yeah. And by me telling the truth, they were able to help me figure it out. Yeah. Now, if I told them half the truth, they can half help me figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted the I wanted the full solution. Yeah. So for the first time, I said, if I'm going to do this. I might as well just do it. Yeah. And I just told the truth. Yeah. And as they say, the truth will set you free. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that you do oftentimes as well, as I um, sort of assume, but also sort of know, is that if people need help, they have, I don't know, especially in Genius, in the group we're in, um, or anywhere, anywhere, they know somebody who's really struggling. For example, a drug addict, and they're on the streets or whatever. Um what you do is you go there and you don't help them get rid of the addiction, but you help them get the insight to actually get professional help, right? Definitely. I can't take everybody home with me. It's not a good plan, and it doesn't work. No. So the best thing that I can do is convince your loved one or yourself to get professional help Yeah. and to understand what that professional help can do for you. If you have a heart murmur, I can talk to you for hours. I, I can't fix it. No. I need to convince you to go to a doctor. Yeah. If your sight is going, I need to convince you to go see an eye doctor. Yeah. I mean, I am not the solution. I am the bridge 
to where the solution is. Yeah. I'm going to find out what your problem is. I'm going to find out who can fix it. And then it's my job or my position to convince you to go. Yeah. So I'm great at convincing people to go. Yeah. But they don't ex- necessarily come to me. Yeah. I'm just the, the vessel or the pathway to go to where they really need to go. Yeah. So you're a great sales guy. I'm, I'm a great salesman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can sell water to a whale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, what's the best thing that prison taught you? The best thing that prison taught me is I don't break. That as bad as it got and as bad as it is, you can come back. Yeah. I mean, I would have much rather get that lesson someplace else. But um, I was stood and went through a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff. And I made it. Yeah. And if I can make it through that, I can make it. Yeah. You can't threaten me with anything. No. So there's no more, you do this or else. Or else what? You're yeah. going to lock me in a basement and yeah. shoot me up with Thursday and chain me to the floor? I've yeah. already done that. Yeah. yeah. I've already wow. done that. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? Stick me on a yard with 20 people with knives want to chop my head off? I've already been there. Yeah. You, I mean, what are you going to threaten? I mean, this the... We're going to put you someplace and tell you we're never, ever, 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 ever going to let you out. You're going to spend a million years in here, and you're just going to rot? Been there. Yeah. You're going to feed me awful, awful food? What, you're going to urinate in my coffee? I mean, what, what are you going to do to me that already been done? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing you can do to me or threaten me with right now mm-hmm. that would make me say, really? Yeah. So basically, you sort of become fearless. You, it's not, yeah, you can use the term fearless. It's, I've seen it. Yeah. You become knowledgeable. Yeah. I'm knowledgeable what real pain can look like. Yeah. I'm knowledgeable what real crisis looks like. Yeah. So everybody go. You don't need to go to prison to learn this, yeah. by the way. Yeah. We all can learn it at the level in which we are. Yeah. You've been through something. Let it be your lesson. Yeah. You're still spending a lot of time uh, in prison. I'm in prison. I'm in prison more now than I was when I was sentenced. Yeah. Um, there was a crisis situation in South Carolina in America where a lot of prisoners killed each other. And since I'm the crisis management expert, the state reached out to me and said, Andre, we have a problem. Prisoners are killing each other. So I went into the prison, and it's my job now to convince them not to kill each other. So I run a housing unit for inmates who are prone to kill each other. Different gangs, different situations, different people. I put them all in one unit, and I teach them how not to kill each other and how to be better. Mm. And one of the key things that I use is entrepreneurship. Mm. It's just like a unifying equal. Mm. Everybody wants to be a business owner. Everybody wants to make money. Everybody wants to be creative. Not just a CEO, an entrepreneur. There's a difference. Mm. Um, Entrepreneurs are the creative ones. CEOs are just guy who manages. So I'm teaching entrepreneurship. I'm not teaching business. Um, how to be creative, how to create tangible results, how to actually bring something to existence that didn't exist before. Yeah. So I'm in prison 12 to 18 hours a day, seven days a week, teaching entrepreneurship to people who, if they don't learn this, they'll murder each other. Yeah, yeah. And what's the result of you teaching it? What is the results? This unit has been open about eight weeks now, and we have four metrics. The first metric is... Did a staff member get harmed or assaulted? We are at zero mm. for eight weeks. Mm. The second metric is, has an inmate been assaulted? We're at zero for eight weeks. The third metric is, have you found any weapons? We're at zero for eight weeks. 
And the last metric is, which is a indicator of attitude, at lockdown time, at the end of the day, they lock in for the night. Is there a problem with lockdown time? Do you have to fight with them to lock them in? And we've had zero incidents mm. in eight weeks. Mm. So we are batting a 1,000 in all metrics. No staff assaults, no inmate assaults, no weapons, and no problems with lock-in. Yeah. So is it what you do is just you give them perspective? You give them a guide. I walked into the water, and I'm standing in the water with them. And I'm not giving instructions from a pulpit or from a from a platform. No. I'm literally in the water with them. Yeah. If something goes wrong, I am physically standing next to the people who are doing the wrong. Yeah. So they're like, I'm like, I bet my life yeah. that you can be better. Yeah. And nobody's ever bet anything worthwhile on them. Mm. I wouldn't bet five cents that you can be better, mm. is the average thought. I wouldn't bet one euro that you can change your life. And I tell them, I bet my life that you can be better. Mm. And I stand with you. And if I lie to you, I'm standing in front of you. Mm. If I tell you the truth, I'm standing in front of you. Mm. And I'm believing that there's good in you. Mm. And I'm showing you I believe it because I'm standing here next to you. Yeah. I'm not behind a wall or a fence or a glass. I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with you. Mm. And I'm going to show you the way out. Yeah. And most people, when it comes to violent felons, don't want to stand shoulder to shoulder with good cause. No. Everybody shouldn't. But police officers are trained by who? Police officers. Yeah. Doctors are trained by who? Other doctors. Lawyers are trained by who? Other lawyers. Businessmen and entrepreneurs are inspired by who? Other businessmen and entrepreneurs. So when it comes to this population, I believe the first person on the ground that should set the example should look like them. Mm. They should look at me, and they do, and say, well, he was here, locked in a cell. He was here, ate this food. He was here, away from his family on the holidays. He understands it. Not just read about it. He understands it. Yeah. And so we're using former felons and violent felons to lead the current violent felons. Mm. And it's a model that people are thinking, oh, my God, how did you come to that? <laughs> Every other discipline in the world you use somebody from that discipline to teach. Yeah. But with prisoners, you want to use the opposite. Yeah. You want to use the person who's in charge of locking them up. Yeah. The person who's in charge of turning the key. The person who's in ch- You want to use law enforcement to teach criminals and it doesn't work. Yeah. So why do you do this? Why do I do this? I do this work because this is a work that not, I'm not going to say only I can do, but... Other people, most people can't do this. Mm-hmm. And Joe Polish taught me this, and a lot of folks taught me this. Do what you can do. If other people can do it, then you shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. it. So I think Dan Sullivan said, if other people can do it, then you shouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. So I don't send emails. I don't send invoices. I don't book flights. I don't book hotels because other people can do that. Yeah. I don't clean my house. Other people can do that. I don't iron clothes as a dry cleaner for that. But this work, not everybody can do. So walking into a maximum security prison, locking yourself in a unit with 92 convicted felons who have been violent in prison, and getting them to hear you, hear themselves, and turn their lives around, not everybody can do. Yeah. What's another reason for you to do it? Another reason for me to do it? Um, 
I do ancestry. I'm black. Most of the people in America who are locked up are black. Most people who are being affected by this crisis are black. And I want to see I want to see that change. And I want I want black people in America. I want black people around the world to have a better life. Mm. I mean, I have no problem with any other group, but I definitely want to see my group get off the bottom. Yeah. And being on the bottom is not bad as long as the bottom is a great threshold. Yeah. But we're beneath the bottom right now. Yeah. So we lead the nation in incarceration. We lead the nation in deaths. We lead the nation in a lot of stuff that's bad. Mm. And I don't lead the nation in incarceration anymore. Mm. I don't want to be a group or a demographic of people who need to be confined because we can't comport ourselves. Mm -hmm. What is that saying that you need to lock up one out of four black men because they can't control themselves? I don't like that narrative. I don't like that statement. And I want to do something about it. Yeah. What do you see for yourself doing something about it um, on a bigger scale? On a bigger scale, um, I've been doing this work for 19 years. And in the last two years, prison reform has become cool in America. And I'm looking for whether it's this president or the next one or the one after to look at my work and look at my numbers and my metrics and say, okay, it's time to fix the prison system. Mm. And they're going to call me to the White House and say, Mr. Norman, we would like to have you fix the American prison system. We believe that you are the guy mm. that can do this. We have a thing called the drug czar, and his job is to get rid of drugs in America. We have a czar for a lot of stuff, <laughs> and their job is to fix that area. I want to be the prison guy mm. that goes in, and not just for blacks, just the prison system is broken. There's a lot of white people, a lot of Spanish people, a lot of Asian people. There's a lot of people in people, there. 2.2 yeah. million people in there. 700,000 people come home every year. So if there's 2.2 million people inside, how many kids are being affected? Yeah. How many families are being affected? How many companies are being affected? So it's not just that individual. It affects the whole country and it affects the whole world. Yeah. So if I can fix the American prison dilemma, then I'd be happy. If that's my tribute to the world and my exit, I can live with that. What's the, um, uh, what's the help that you need to achieve that? The help that I need to achieve that is somebody call our president, this one or the next one, or the last one, and say, give this guy a chance. Yeah. I mean, it can be no worse than what it is. Yeah. I mean, if you say, Andre, here are the keys to the prison, go fix it. Yeah. The worst that's going to happen, you go from 2.2 to 2.3. Yeah. The best that's going to happen, it fixes. Yeah. Yeah. I've done two TED Talks on how to fix the American prison system and its issues. Um, but I just need the people in charge to say, we want it, we want this fixed. Yeah, yeah. We want this fixed. Yeah. It's not just a conversational piece. It's not just a political football. It's something that they actually want fixed. Yeah. Because I'm not the guy you call if you just want to look good in the paper for a day. I'm the guy you call when you want it fixed. Yeah. If you don't want it fixed, leave me alone. Yeah. I'll stay where I'm at. Yeah. It's good, man. So, um, what's been um, what's been the worst part of going to prison and being in prison? The worst part of going to prison and being in prison again 
is I see the families attached. Yeah. When I was in prison the first time as a prisoner, I didn't see the outside. Mm. Now when I come in in the morning on Saturdays and certain days, the visits are outside. Mm. And I see people's mothers and fathers and kids and brothers and sisters just standing outside waiting to get in. Yeah. And that's tough. Yeah. And I see them when they leave sometimes. And I see the kid crying in the parking lot, and it's tough. Yeah. Now when I go to a school, I see the kid who has to go through that every Saturday to see their dad or to see their mom. Yeah. And then there's the kids who don't get a chance to go to the prison because it's five hours away. Yeah. So they might go twice a year. And the families, I mean, the guys kind of put themselves there, whatever capacity, but the suffering that the families are going through. Mm. They didn't commit a crime. No. They didn't hurt anybody. No. But the kids and the family members are suffering. And I don't say suffering. They got it really tough. Yeah. It's a tough road to walk. Yeah. And you don't really see it as a prisoner. Mm-hmm. But as somebody who walks in and out the door every day, I now come into contact with the family members. Yeah. And that was my mom 20 years ago. Yeah. Wanting me to be better, wanting services for me, had to stand in line to see her son. Yeah. She had to stand in line, sign papers to see her baby. It's it's tough. Yeah. How uh how do we deal with the feeling of guilt? Which part? As well, far as individual? Yeah. Feeling I mean, guilty is a choice. I did wrong. I want to be clear. I did a lot of bad things in my life. I can spend the rest of my life feeling guilty and shameful and remorseful. And that does nobody any good. Mm. Or I can say, I was wrong. Now I need to be right. Mm. I need to make amends. Mm. So if you ask, some of these people say, Andre's a bad guy. He committed crimes. You should never give him a chance. And I hear that. And every day I wake up to show that person that I deserve this opportunity. I helped somebody yesterday. Mm. I helped somebody the day before. Yeah. I'm going to help somebody today. Yeah. I'm going to help somebody tomorrow. Yeah. And I'm going to make my presence in this world valuable. Yeah. And that's all I can do. Mm-hmm. I can't take back anything. Yeah. I can't undo anything. So the best I can do is not feel guilty for myself every day or beat myself up every day is how can I make it better? Mm. Let me show people that I deserve this second chance. Yeah. Not that it, you, I just give it to me. No, I earn this. Mm. And every day, I earn it. Yeah. I don't reach a point where it's all better. Yeah. So every person should be trying to make it better every day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's it's the difference between um, feeling helpless and feeling helpful almost. Right. Yeah. You've been through something. Guilt, Feeling guilty is you're keeping it to yourself. Yeah. You can repurpose that guilt and become a great champion or a gateway for others. Yeah. So I I I use my my pain as a gateway. Yeah. Of a point of understanding. Yeah. And I become a guide. Yeah. And I walk people through their pain. Yeah. But if I only sat home and felt guilty, I couldn't help anybody. No. Cuz I'm not even trying to help myself. No. No. What would have happened if you would never go to jail, you think? If For I didn't go to jail, I'd have been I wanted to be a judge. <laughs> that was my goal. <laughs> I wanted to be a judge. So I would have had to be a lawyer first, and I'd have been a judge, and I'd, have, I'd probably just be retiring or getting ready to retire. I'd probably have a wife and a couple kids, and I'd be getting ready to die. Nobody ever knew I existed. Yeah, yeah. I'd have made a small blip 
in the city of Boston. Yeah. And out of this come and gone. Yeah. And people said, hey, remember that guy? Who? Andre the Judge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, unfortunately, <laughs> I didn't get a chance to be that guy. So instead, I get to fly around the world and heal people. Yeah. And help people understand that they can live their best life. Yeah. And that guilt shouldn't hold you down. Bad decisions shouldn't hold you back. And that you can be new and better today. Mm. There's always a new and better way today. Yeah. And that we can collaborate. I mean, this, in my mind, was not possible at 17. I could sit in Amsterdam in a studio with a white guy and have a discussion about business or helping people. Yeah. It wasn't a reality. Yeah. I want black kids in Amsterdam. I want black kids in France. I want black kids in America. And I want white kids in Japan. I want them to say, you know, just, there's no more lines. Yeah. Those lines were fake. Yeah. Yeah, Those was, lines were made up by a few people. Yeah. And now we can make it what we want. Yeah. And no more people censoring. I got a cell phone. And with my cell phone, I can touch the world. I can tell the world my truth. Mm-hmm. I can share the world my perspective. And I can say, hey, Alco's my friend. If I had tried to do that in 1980, I could have told 10 people. Yeah. Now I go on Facebook and Instagram, I can tell 10 million people. Yeah. And social proof, they call it. Yeah, yeah. We can show the world that what the few people who try to control the narrative are wrong. Yeah. We control our own narrative now. If yeah. you don't learn anything else from this talk, no, you control your own narrative. Mm. And that's what life's about. Yeah. You control your narrative, and you direct your life, and you share your truth to the world. Yeah. And my truth is, there's no perfect scenario, and you can be friends with anybody. You can be enemies with anybody. Mm. Um, you can go anywhere you want in the world. I didn't believe that as a kid. I could go anywhere. But as I travel to all these wonderful places, I tell kids back where I'm from, you can go anywhere. How do you know? I just came back from Amsterdam. You can go anywhere. How do you know? I just came back from France yeah. or from Norway. Yeah. Man, like, yeah, really? Now it's, really? Yeah. You can go there? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sending postcards. I have 20 postcards in my hotel I'm sending the 20 prisoners back in America. Their guy who did time with them, who coaches and trains them, is in Amsterdam. How do they know? They have social proof, mm. tangibles. They have a postcard from Amsterdam. Yeah. That one-euro postcard might be the spark to change a man's life around. Yeah, man. Change a whole family around. Yeah. A one-euro postcard. Yeah, that's it. So it's never that I need to give them a building. Just need to give them a spark. Yeah. You never know what that spark's going to be. True. So you just keep smacking. You, you ever seen people with back in the cavemen? They smack the rock, smack yeah. the rock. You don't know which one's going to spark it, no. but you keep smacking that rock until yeah. it sparks. Yeah. So I just keep smashing these rocks together until I see the fly kick in. I love it. That's it. Yeah, man. It's good. So final question. Um, we met through... Uh, uh, we met at Genius Network. Genius Network. Well, Joe Polish is in the building. Yeah. What's, what's happening? That's my brother from another mother. That's uh, So what's the number one thing or what are the things that you learned from Joe or from Genius Network? The number one thing I learned from Joe. And if it wasn't for Joe, we, we wouldn't be sitting here. If it wasn't for Joe, we wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't meet a, I've met so many cool people and I've been able to help so many people um, because of Joe yeah. and our friendship together. And family, he's family now. Mm. So if anybody messes with Joe, this no, he knows people. Yeah. Listen, yeah. don't underestimate. Joe knows people. Yeah, he knows he, you. So. He knows me, yeah. and I listen. I tell people, 
I'm, so I'm saved, but I ain't safe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still got the hood hookup. <laughs> I did not turn in my hood card. Don't mess with my brother Joe. It's just not acceptable anymore. And if you've been giving them a hard time, know that I'm coming to give you a hard time. Yeah. And if you think you can BS me, you got another thing coming. But like, yeah. So all y'all, all y'all people who've been thinking you can give my brother a hard time, a new day is coming. So what's what's the, what thing I learned from Joe? Yeah. If I had one thing, heal people. Mm. People heal people. Mm. His thing is he wants to create a new dynamic of healing. Mm. That's the best way to describe it. He'll say treat people with kindness, treat people with respect, don't try to lock away the pain, don't try to punish them out of them. The best thing, or if I had to condense it, is to heal people. Yeah. It's just, just heal people. Yeah. Don't halfway heal them. Don't partway heal them. Because if you halfway heal somebody, you're doing it to control them. Heal people. Mm-hmm. Give people the chance to just live free and be. Yeah. And you never know what, what creative person come out of that. Joe used to be somebody who was in a lot of pain. And when he healed from his pain, now he's one of the greatest networkers and marketers on the planet. He went from being a uh, out-of-control, dysfunctional, hurt young man. But when he got his pain taken care of, now look at him. Mm-hmm. So how many more Joe Polishes do we have? Mm-hmm. How many more Andre Normans do we have? Mm-hmm. How many more? There's, there's, there's too many people who are stuck behind their pain. Mm-hmm. It's not their potential. He didn't get smart after he got healed. He was smart before he was healed. Mm-hmm. He just couldn't access it because of the pain. So when you take the pain out of somebody's life, then you see what they can be. Mm-hmm. Then their potential just shoots through the roof. Yeah. So I would say stop talking to people's potential and start talking to their pain. Mm, truth. And that's what my brother has taught me. Yeah. Talk to the pain, and once you believe that, the potential will take care of itself. True, true. Um, this was great. How do we uh, learn more about you? Where can we find you online? Where do you find Andre Norman online? I'm on the hideaway status. You know, I'm off the grid. No, that's my brother. <laughs> my brother's on some off the grid stuff. I'm like, you can't be off the grid, Eric. <laughs> it doesn't work. And if you wanted to find me, the number one thing you do is you call Elko. That's first and foremost. Yeah. Man, listen. This, when I go to places, I come here. I'm here with you. So if they want to find me, they need to call you. Yeah. I mean. I got Instagram, I got Facebook, all that stuff is findable. But um, to keep it simple, they should reach out to you, mm-hmm. email, text, show up to an event, whatever, and say, hey, because if I come back to the, I come back to the Netherlands, it's coming back with you. Mm. I'm not here, oh, we're not going to hire Andre. If anybody says or thinks you're going to hire me to come give a speech for you, it doesn't work like that. Mm. You just can't hire me. I'm, I'm not available for sale. You have to call my brother. And say, yo, Elko, I want your guy to come out here. You might think that's stupid or you don't want to hire me because, and that's fine. I live with that. Um, if I come here to this country, they need to call you, and you need to say, okay, Dre, this is because I trust you. Mm. And you're not going to let me into a bad situation. And if I do 20 situations, two are going to be bad yep. just because I don't know any better. Yeah. If I do 10 through you, 10 are going to be good. Yeah. So for my own self-interest, I know enough to stick to the source yeah. and stick to the person I know and love and I trust. 
you're not going to let me go down a bad road intentionally. Yeah. Not that other people, that's their intentions, but some people are just upside down. Yeah. So if you want to reach Andre Norman, it's real simple. Call me up. Call Elko. Yeah. And Elko has direct access to me. He can call me, he can hit me up, and, and say, if, if E says roll, we roll. Yeah. <laughs> that's oh, it. I like it. So, but also, Instagram. What's your Instagram profile? My Instagram is at Andre Norman. Facebook. My Facebook is Andre Norman. AndreNorman.com, right? And AndreNorman.com is yeah. my website. Yeah. But what will happen is, yeah, is Andre Norman is everything. Yeah. Instagram, Facebook, website. AndreNorman.com, at Andre Norman, and Andre Norman. Yeah. All my social media stuff. That's good. But um, when it comes time to actually, hey, I have had some people send me DMs. Hey, I got this event. Call Elko. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I keep life so simple. Yeah. I'm saying you can call don't complicate your life and try to manage everything. Yeah. I know very little about Amsterdam and the Netherlands. Yeah. You know everything. Yeah. So I'd be dumb to try to go around you because I thought it was an opportunity to crash myself into a brick wall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I always tell people, don't take the Volvo job. If they try to hand you a Volvo jacket, don't do it. No. Don't be a crash dummy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, you know them, you know me. It gets to a point where you can only facilitate so much, but... We'll, 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 you know. we'll work it out. Yeah, exactly. I would love to come. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter if it's two kids in the, in, in the east side of town or if it's 2,000 businessmen on the north side of town. I'll come. Yeah. If it's a grade school or college, I'll come. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry about the size of the event. Yeah. I've been here for almost a week. Yeah. And I've been asking for places to go visit. Yeah. I want to go visit someplace. Yeah. I want to go speak. I want to go share. Yeah. So it's not about the need or the want. It's just making sure everything lines up correctly. Yeah, yeah man. So, uh, man, I want to acknowledge you for, um, for everything you do. And uh, I think I told you before that, I think I told you in Phoenix that you do something that we all crave and you help people. Like, that's just what you do. When you say, uh, um, um, what did you say in the beginning, that if people ask you what you do, you say, crisis I'm a crisis man. manager. Yeah. I th- if I would give the answer for you, I would say, I just help people. I help You people. help people. And that's just what you do. And um, and again, it doesn't matter for you. If it's two people or 2,000 people, um, it's just what you do. And that's something that, again, we all crave. I noticed when you gave, uh, you did your talk at my at our event, which was phenomenal. Like, it was unbelievable. Um, you sparked that peace in all of us. And um, after the talk was done, people were sharing. And they like, a lot of people go to this event because they want to grow their business, have a better lifestyle, all that stuff. All of them were sharing like, yeah, I want to, I want to be, uh, I want to make more of a difference and, uh, and, uh, create more of a change and help more people. And so not just, are you helping people? You're also really inspiring a lot of people to help a lot of other people. So the ripple effect of you just doing who you are and what you are and what you do, it's, uh, it's amazing. So thank you for that. Uh, appreciate it this time on this podcast. And um, this was great, man. I would say to all the listeners, to whoever's out there, I would ask that you do one thing. Find somebody and say a kind word to them. Mm. Not one of your best friends. Someone that you don't know or someone that you don't like. Just find somebody. And start a chain reaction of positivity. Just say, hey, man. I'm happy to see you today, man. Hey. Hope you have a great day today. Yeah. Not just give a guy a dollar and roll up your window. Shake his hand and say, listen, man, 
Hope this dollar does you well. Mm. Say something nice to somebody. And I know you have like 100,000 listeners or 200,000 listeners. So if 200,000 people go out tomorrow and say something kind to somebody, that's 400,000 people. And if everybody does it the next day, that's 800,000 people. If everybody does it the next day, that's 1.6 million people. We can less than in a month touch the whole Netherlands. Mm. It's, it's not anything that's going to cost you. Time, money, resources. Say something kind. Say something kind to somebody. Yeah. And we can in less than 30 days change the dynamic of a country with kind words. Thank you, man. Appreciate you.